Well, today on a day we did parent baby dedication. This may be a strange question to begin the sermon with, but I'll do it anyway. Any of you parents ever had to kick your kids out of the house? God did. God did. Can you imagine God, after Adam and Eve's bit of the forbidden fruit, can you imagine God turning to an angel and saying, I just gave them one command, just one. Have you ever given much thought to the worldwide flood? That's some serious wrath. It changed the earth. The first time I went to the Grand Canyon, tears welled up in my eyes because I was looking at a scar. God's wrath for man's sin. Only eight people were spared. We had a terrific hailstorm last year, terrifying for some of you, depending on where you lived. Car windows being broken, house windows being broken. Terrifying experience. Can you imagine living in Sodom and Gomorrah when it was hell, fire and brimstone? Only four people were spared and one of them looked back. How bad is sin? It's worse than you thought. The spotless Lamb of God cried out from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's how bad sin is. And yet in all of these examples, in every one of these examples of justice, of wrath, of God's righteousness being unleashed because of sin, in every one of them, mercy shines through. Mercy shines through. Mercy to Adam and Eve. Mercy to Noah, his wife and his children. Mercy there at Sodom and Gomorrah. And certainly the cross is all about where righteousness met mercy. And so is Revelation chapter 7 where we are once again as a church family. If you'll turn there with me in your Bibles to Revelation 7. This is a chapter that's all about God showing mercy in the midst of his wrath. Mercy shining through like the sunshine through a a terrible storm. This time period that we're looking at is yet in the future. It is going to take place during the future tribulation on the earth. And what we see in this chapter is that God will display or manifest his mercy in three distinct ways. Two weeks ago, we looked at the first two of these three. Number one is we see the mercy of delayed judgment. This is in verses one to three. By the way, if you're here today and you're unsaved, you're not born again because of faith in Christ. You are experiencing this mercy right now. The mercy of delayed judgment. The second thing we saw was the mercy of God protecting one hundred and forty four thousand Israelites. That's in verses four through eight. Our application there is simply this. God is not done with Israel. So pray and vote and support accordingly. Number three, the third way mercy is put on display in this chapter is the mercy of salvation for multitudes. This is verses 9 through 17. In a word, heaven. 
You want to talk about heaven with me this morning? You want to listen and think about heaven? That's what we're going to do this morning. If this was a standalone sermon, the title would be heaven. I've got a simple outline for you. It's three questions. You know, when our, when our kids were growing up and, and we were going to go somewhere they haven't been before, maybe to someone's home or often a church event, you know, like a home group or, or some kind of church get together. We were always bombarded with these questions from our kids. Number one, who will be there? Number two, what will we do? Those are your first two questions today of our outline. And then number three, why should we want to go? Our kids wouldn't ask that question, but I'm going to add it to the list. So our three simple questions this morning as we consider the place of heaven are these questions. Who will be there? What will we do? And why should you want to go? So let's begin out of Revelation chapter 7. This, this uh, propitious pause, this tender time out in the midst of God's wrath. Let's begin with who will be there. Follow along. I'm going to read verse 9 and then verses 13 and 14. John says, after these things, I looked and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the lamb clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands. In verse 13, then one of the elders answered, saying to me, these who are clothed in the white robes, who are they and where have they come from? I said to him, my Lord, you know And he said to me, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Who will be there? I'm answering this question from a human perspective. What humans will be there? What does this chapter teach us? First of all, it teaches us that there will be at least one hundred and forty four thousand that represent in end times a massive Jewish revival. These will not be all of the Jewish people saved. These will be an army of witnesses, as we saw two weeks ago. Added to them is a multitude that represents a massive Gentile revival during the tribulation. And all of this takes place during the worst days of human history. That's how Jesus described the great tribulation. A massive Jewish revival, a massive Gentile revival during the worst days of God's wrath on earth. And I say to you, how great is our God? How wonderful is our God? How merciful is our God? That it is most wrathful moment outwardly. There is so much salvation, mercy taking place. So we see in this chapter, we go from one nation to every nation From 12 tribes of Israel to all tribes. We go from a group that we're able to count, 144,000, to a group that no one can number. No one can count the size of this crowd. Who will be there? A great multitude which no one could count. How great is our God? You know what this is? You know what we're we're seeing here in Revelation chapter 7? We are seeing the ultimate fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant will be fulfilled when in you God promised Abraham, Genesis 12, 3. In you all the families of the earth will be blessed. There will be a great multitude. No one can count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues. This is a tremendous thing. Who will be there? Well, we learn about them that they're wearing white robes. 
white robes down to their feet. These white robes are symbolic of their victory over evil, their victory over Satan, their victory over Antichrist. They have come out of the great tribulation and they are victorious. And so they have white robes and these white robes also represent the righteousness of God that is upon them. They were declared righteous before they died. And now they have been made righteous, perfectly righteous, totally righteous. And so these white robes are their decor, their wardrobe there in heaven. We also see of them that they wave palm branches there before the throne of God. Palm branches that were used in the festival of the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles, which was a feast for the Jewish people once a year that they would do to celebrate their exodus from Egypt. These folks are going to be celebrating their exodus from the earth, from the tribulation in particular. We learn later that they come out in verse 14. They, these are the ones who have come out of the great tribulation. This is likely a reference to death, mostly martyrdom. It's believed that most of this uh, multitude described here were martyred, though that's not required. They could have died from other causes. That's possible. But one way or the other, they have come out of the great Tribulation, And so this passage is primarily, as we look at interpretation, this passage is geared toward those who were probably martyred. The white robes connects them back to chapter 6 and verse 11. There was given to each of them a white robe and they were told to rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed even as they had been would be completed also so that was one of the seal judgments right the martyr the martyrs of the fifth seal that white robe connects the two and it's likely uh, this language they've come out of the great tribulation that that's likely a reference to their martyrdom itself and, and so as we interpret this passage it is primarily focused on those Apparently, who will be martyred in the future tribulation period. But catch this, as you look at what happens with them, as you look at the descriptions of them, as you look at their experience there in heaven, you step back and you say, well, lo and behold, this is the experience of everybody who's in heaven. In fact, this is a foreshadowing of things to come in the book of Revelation. The language here in this chapter before we get to the end of it, is very similar to what we'll find in Revelation 21 and 22, which is describing everyone who is in heaven. And so here we're focused on those who are probably martyred, but what's true of them is also going to be true of us. And that is because they have a defining characteristic. And their defining characteristic is there in verse 14. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And so I dressed accordingly. The white shirt and the red tie. The good news this morning, beloved, is you do not have to be a martyr to go to heaven. (laughs) That's good news. You do not have to be a martyr to go to heaven. Now... The martyrs who are in heaven may get some special honors. They may get some special privileges based on this chapter. They may be in some ways closer to the throne here. 
They may that may be the highest privilege that a person can receive as a Christian. That's all very possible, but you do not have to be martyred to go to heaven. You just have to die to yourself. You have to die to yourself to go to heaven and you have to be cleansed by the blood of Christ from your sins. Like the worst sin of all. The sin of thinking you have no sin. And therefore you belittle the blood of Christ. To think you have no sin is the worst sin of all because that's the sin that most belittles the blood of Christ. Blood that was shed for our sins. A payment in our place for the penalty that we deserved. Don't go to the laundry mat of I'm a good person. You will come out dirtier than you went in. If you wash in the soap of man-made religion, you will only be filthier. Any salvation other than the one based on the Bible alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, will leave you in hell alone. So how do you wash? It says these are the ones who have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. How do you do this? You do it by tearing off your filthy rags of self-righteousness. Before you can wash in the blood of the Lamb, you've got to tear off your own goodness. You've got to tear off your own morality that you think will get you into heaven. You've got to tear off your filthy rags of self-righteousness and come broken before a holy God with no hope whatsoever of heaven except Jesus Christ and His righteousness. This is how you wash in the blood of the Lamb. It's recognizing that the righteousness of Jesus is what you need. And then you receive that as a gift. You don't work for it as a payment. You don't earn it. You receive it as a pure and total gift from God. When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. Who will be there? Only those washed in the blood of the Lamb. Only those who have trusted the death of Christ on their behalf. Only those who believe in their heart that God raised Him from the dead. Only those who have called upon the name of the Lord. Only those who see their need for Jesus. Who will be there? Well, there will be no Stephen Paddocks there trying to shoot up the place for no apparent reason. There'll be no God-hating, Christ-rejecting atheists. There'll be no unrepentant thieves, liars, cowards, or wolves in sheep's clothing. There'll be no antichrist, no false prophet, no devil, and no demons. They won't be there. There'll be no pretenders. And there'll be no almost Christians. And there'll be no unrepentant persecutors of Christians. There'll be no one there who dies in their sin of fornication. Dies in their sin of idolatry or adultery. Dies in their sin of being effeminate or homosexual. There'll be no one there who dies in their sin of being covetous or a drunkard. A reviler or a swindler. None of these will inherit the kingdom of God. There'll be no good people there. No people good in themselves. No people boasting in their own righteousness. 
There will only be sinners there saved by grace, washed in the blood of the Lamb, whose robes have been made white as snow by His righteousness and His blood. There will only be people there who have been made good by Christ, who will be there only glorified saints who want to be there. It's so crazy to go to some funeral sometime and have a preacher preach a guy that was just the, the most sinful, ungodly person you can imagine and preach them right into heaven in their funeral. As if they're going to want to be with God's people once they're dead, but they never wanted to be with God's people when they were alive. No, there'll be only people who want to be there, who long to be there. Now imagine this place where everyone loves God. And everyone worships our Christ and everyone loves you perfectly, perfectly. Everyone in heaven will love holiness, separation from sin. Everyone in heaven will hate sin and hate it perfectly. Everyone in heaven will be on the same page. We'll be unified in doctrine. And yet there will still be ethnic diversity. There may even be language diversity. I hope there is. The text tells us that it's a great multitude from every nation and all tribes and all peoples and all tongues or languages. And I hope that all of them are there. Because we're going to know them all. (laughs) You can come up and talk to me in Swahili and I'll understand that perfectly. And I can respond in Japanese and you'll understand that perfectly. (laughs) How awesome would that be? What an amazing place this is going to be with only believers in Christ. There'll be no more awkward witnessing situations. (laughs) There'll be no more times where I've got to try to turn the conversation to the things of God. No more times where I've got to try to be salt and light because this conversation or this situation is going in a dark direction. There'll be no more of that. All people will be conformed to the image of Christ. There'll be no more intramural squabbles among Christians. We will all be at perfect peace with each other. There'll be no denominations, no differences of doctrine or belief, nothing to separate us, nothing to drive a wedge between us. And there'll be no more of those annoying perfectionists because we'll all be perfect. (laughs) This scene of heaven that we're going to see in this chapter This great scene of heaven of only those clothed in the righteousness of Christ shouts to us this morning that the believer should never fall into despair. Never fall into despair because God has the last word, not Satan. And Jesus wins, not Antichrist. Never fall into despair. The only person that should despair is the person with no Hope. If you have no hope, you should despair. But if you're a believer, you have hope and your hope is heaven and being conformed to the image of Christ. This scene of heaven also warns us. It warns us to leave our racism at the gate. Racism is alive. It's not well, but it is very much alive in our country and it's alive in the south and it's alive in the church. And this scene of heaven teaches all of us right now here today that we will leave all vestiges of racism at the gate. 
You know what else we're going to leave at the gate? We're going to leave American exceptionalism at the gate. (laughs) That's not going to go in with us. We might go in with some Israeli exceptionalism, (laughs) but not American exceptionalism. What this chapter teaches us, once again, is that there's one race. It's called the human race. Every child of Adam is equally lost and every child of God is equally saved only by the blood of Christ. Heaven will be populated with people from every nation. If you don't want to be around people from every nation, then you will not like heaven. So that's the first question that we answer. Who will be there? Those who have made themselves white in the blood of the lamb. Second question, what will we do? What will we do in heaven? Look with me at verses 10 through 12 and then 15 through 17. This great multitude cries out in verse 10 with a loud voice. So it's an innumerable multitude and yet they're singing with this one unified voice. Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Verse 15, for this reason, the reason that they'd come out of the great tribulation and they were washed in the blood of the Lamb. For this reason, they are before the throne of God. And they serve him day and night in his temple, his heavenly temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tabernacle over them. They will hunger no longer, nor thirst any more, nor will the sun beat down on them, nor any heat. For the lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to the springs of the water of life. And God will wipe every tear from their eyes. This is what we will do. This is what it will be like. These are just unbelievable words of encouragement for us this morning. Unbelievable words of comfort. So this great multitude that's come out of the tribulation led to the Lord by this 144,000 Jewish army of, of four to eight. They're now before the throne. They're standing before the throne celebrating their exodus. And they're crying out with this loud voices. This little one one phrase, this one one line song salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That's kind of interesting wording because God doesn't need saving. And what they're really saying here is that salvation belongs to our God. Salvation has come from our God. Rescue from this persecution has been wrought by our God. What they're saying here is that this salvation that we're experiencing is is a salvation that belongs to God and it's His to give and His alone. He is the one that owns it. He is the one that possesses it. And he can give this salvation to whomever he chooses. Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. They cry with a loud voice. You see, with all of this ethnic diversity, all of this linguistic diversity, you still have this great unity in heaven. As millions upon millions of people sing the same song in unison. This is what we will do in heaven. We will celebrate in one unified voice with untold millions. You talk about passionate worship. Here it is. 
Here is passionate worship. And the angels, look what happens here. Verse 10, it's, it's redeemed people. And, and they're acknowledging that their rescue from sin and their rescue from the earth and their rescue from the wrath of God has come from God and God alone and, and from the Lamb, of course. It's the triune God. But look what it triggers. It, 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 our worship as redeemed people triggers ex- additional worship by the angelic realm. We've seen this back in chapters 4 and 5, didn't we? All of the angels are standing around the throne. And that number there is innumerable. It's myriads upon myriads and millions upon millions. And they're around the throne. And, and then there's the 24 elders around the throne. And then there's those four living creatures that we learned about in chapter 5. And they're around the throne. And, and now our worship triggers more of their worship. And they fall on their faces before the throne. And they worship God. And what they say in verse 12 is basically, agree. We agree. Look at this. They don't even experience salvation. They don't even know what we're talking about. And they say, agree. Amen. And then there are these seven words of their praise. Seven, the number of completion. Seven, the number of perfection. They say, blessing. We speak well of you, God. We give you glory. You're magnificent and majestic in your salvation wonders. They're they're longing to look into this, you see. They're longing to understand it. They say, oh, wisdom belongs to God. Who could plan such a salvation? Who could bring about such a rescue of sinners? But God, and, and here's a new word in Revelation, thanksgiving. They're, they're like vicariously giving thanks for our salvation. Thanksgiving and honor and power and might. It's just kind of the whole spectrum of all of God's attributes that came to bear on saving sinners from their sin. And they say, be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Agree, agree, agree. So these holy ancient creatures who have no sin of their own are prompted to worship God because of the worship of redeemed humanity. I want you to think about the best worship you've ever experienced in your life. Those best moments where you were worshiping in spirit and in truth. And you would say it's just one of those handful of times my whole life that just stands out above all others as the best experience of worship I've ever had. Maybe you were singing Probably singing with a group of people in a church service, perhaps, or some other setting. Maybe it's while you were hearing a sermon. I've certainly experienced that myself. Maybe praying, praying with another person or praying by yourself. Perhaps it was at a Lord's table service where you you think back to the best worship you've ever experienced. Maybe it was some moment of rescue in your life. I mean, you had some physical rescue. You were about to die. You were on the edge of eternity and God just intervened in your life. Or maybe it was a time of a great, great blessing that you just didn't expect and you knew you didn't deserve. Maybe the birth of a child or or just some amazing blessing God brought to your life. and, And it just brought you to your knees. I know for myself, my best worship, if you can say it that way, my best worship is when I've been overwhelmed by the greatness of God and by the love of Jesus for a wretch like me. The lower I am, the higher my worship of this Christ and of his love. 
I believe that our purest worship is when the thought of salvation takes our breath away. When the thought of salvation overwhelms us. And we don't always feel overwhelmed by the thought of our salvation. But there are those moments where, where the distractions fade away and the, and the clouds clear and we see clearly as best we can in this life what God has done for us. And I want you to take that moment, whatever it was in your life, that moment of your purest and your best worship that you've ever experienced. And I now want you to add millions of people to that moment from every nation who are feeling the exact same way. And now I want you to subtract sin and all of your bodily weaknesses and pains and imperfections. And I want you to subtract all earthly distractions and worldly temptations. And now I want you to add the presence of God himself that you cannot see and add the presence of Jesus Christ that you can see. And subtract the possibility of this ever becoming dull or boring. And add the thought, this is what I was made for. This is why I exist. This is why Jesus died on the cross for me. And now subtract all sorrow, death, and every possible source of discomfort. And add the tenderness of the king spreading his tabernacle over you like Boaz with Ruth. And add Jesus is there and he is your shepherd and he is going to lead you to gushing fountains of living water. And lush fields of endless sustenance. Because he is the living water. And he is that lush field. And now you can subtract at the end every tear of sorrow that you've ever cried in your life. Because the king himself is going to condescend from the throne of the universe. And come down and wipe your cheek. God himself will wipe away their tears. When you add all of that up and subtract all of that out, what is it equal? Heaven. Heaven. That's what it's going to be like. You understand, in heaven, all that we will know is the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. That's all we'll know. That's all we'll know. Paul said to live is Christ and to die is gain. Beloved, this is the gain. Here it is. That brings us to our third and final question. The third question that you asked me this morning. You asked me this morning, who goes to heaven? And you asked me, what are we going to do there? And now your third question is, why should I want to go? Seriously? (laughs) You're really going to ask me that this morning? You understand the options, right? Is there a better place? Is there something better than this? I'd sure like to hear about it. Because I want to, I want to be there. I mean, look at what he's describing here. We're before the throne of God. We serve him day and night in his temple. 
there's activity, there's work, there's production, there's blessing of of seeing things accomplished for the king of kings. It's not just sitting around on a cloud playing a harp. We're serving the king of kings in his temple. We have duties, we have jobs, we have responsibilities, and we have all the energy and the motivation to, to carry them out perfectly. And he's going to spread his tent over us. That's his, that's his tent of protection from all that would ever be uncomfortable. And we'll never know a hunger pain again. We'll never thirst again. And this is what these first century Christians were experiencing. They were experiencing hunger and thirst and the sun beating down on them because he's writing to people who lived in the Middle East in desert lands. And the lamb is there and he's our shepherd. He's going to lead us right up to these fountains of living water and God's taking away everything that ever made us sad. Why is Revelation 7 in the Bible? Between all of these judgments of Revelation 6 and more judgments that will come in Revelation 8, why is this chapter here? What is it trying to do? It's trying to do this. It's saying, child of God, no matter how bleak your life is today, your future is awesome. Your future is awesome. You have no idea what God has in store for you. No matter if you're being persecuted in the first century or the 21st century. No matter if you're in the church where Antipas was a martyr for Christ and a dear brother was lost there. John is trying to show these folks, even if your head comes off because you follow Christ, this is what awaits you. This is what awaits you. As the tears flow down our face today, we need to think of the moment when God tenderly wipes our cheek. And that brings a smile to our face even now. What this tells us is that God will make up all that we've suffered and God will make up all that we've lost. God will make all things new. God will not withhold any good thing from those who love him and those who are washed. One day soon we will be robed in complete righteousness. No more nakedness. No more shame. No more stains. No more guilt. No more sin. One day soon we will be rescued, waving palm branches to celebrate our exodus from the earth. No more pain. And one day soon we will be rewarded beyond our imagination. No more lack. Rescued, robed, rewarded. That's heaven. That's heaven. It's for martyrs and it's for everyone who's washed their robe in the blood of the Lamb. Father in heaven, we thank you for this glorious, glorious place that awaits us who are in Christ. We pray this morning that there be no soul in this building, whether today or sometime in the future. We think about these babies we've dedicated. We pray, O oh God, that there would be no one in this room who would step out into eternity who had not washed their robe in the blood of the Lamb. Father, we depend on you totally to bring the conviction of sin that only the Holy Spirit can bring. The conviction of lostness. The conviction of deserving to die and go to hell. We ask your Holy Spirit right now to bring that conviction to the person sitting here smug in their self-righteousness, smug in their own goodness, and yet facing a wrath That is horrific beyond anything we've ever seen on this earth. 
And Lord, we pray also today that you would help us who are Christians to be grateful and humble and prolific in our witness as salt and light until you call us home.